Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. Luke chapter 2, and I would make this statement as we kind of get, uh, get to rolling, that in a very remote place to unknown parents, the Son of God stepped into the world. And if you start to ponder even the Christmas narrative, Joseph was probably thinking like, God, I, I, I've had enough. This has been tough. Uh, here you are asking me to marry this pregnant girl. Uh, our families are making fun of us. We're constantly facing humiliation. Is, is anybody ever going to believe this story and even our story? And now you've asked me to walk and travel with my wife some 75 miles from this little village of Nazareth to a place called Bethlehem. And when we finally do get there and arrive, we're sleeping under the stars with a bunch of animals. I like what Kent Hughes said. He said, Joseph, he probably wept as much as Mary did. Seeing her pain, their poverty, People's indifference, the smell of animals, feeling just humiliated and helpless. Hugh said that would make a man cry, maybe even curse. You think, what a night, what a scene. You think about the pain, you think about the exhaustion, you think about the humiliation again, you think about the conditions that they're in. And if you start to dive into the text, you, you, you probably need to ask the question, why Bethlehem? Why would he be born in Bethlehem? Caesar Augustus had mandated that a census be taken. Many people would believe that he was doing it not just for a head count, but to raise taxes because people in power wanted more money. And you start to think through this, that here they are, Mary and Joseph, betrothed, travel some 70 to 80 miles, most scholars believe it's about a 75-mile track to get to Bethlehem. This is the final week of her pregnancy. Could you imagine as a pregnant girl, I look at my son Jesse right now and his wife Kelsey, and I'm like, I could not imagine them, based on the, on the conditions of that day, having to travel some 75 miles whether it's by foot or animal or whatever, all the way to Bethlehem. But Micah, the prophet, had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bet means house of. Laham means bread. That the bread of life was going to be born in Breadville, Bethlehem, that God was sending forth his manna that would satisfy the hunger of every person on the planet in Bethlehem. Micah prophesied in chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem, you are a small village among all of the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you on my behalf. You, you've got to stop and tap the brakes and just consider how prophetic this word was that Micah was giving, that God was going to 
usher in. And the people of Israel were very familiar with God's provision with manna, even as they wandered in the wilderness. And now God is promising that the bread of life that will satisfy every person's hunger, that will bring about energy and completion and wholeness is about to be born. You pick up the text in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 6, and it says this, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Now, I want you to think for a second. I want you to think about if you study the narrative and the birth account of Jesus that is given to us in Luke. Matthew also captures that. Mark and John do not go there in the Gospels, if you will. But the two primary books that we go to are Luke and Matthew as they capture the Christmas narrative. And here's what you're going to find. As you start to ponder it, you're going to find a lot of details that they do not give that man has added and injected and inserted over the years. It's amazing to me so many things that people believe about the Christmas narrative and the Christmas story are not even in Scripture. We would say, man, those things are extra-biblical Alex, they're unbiblical. They're not biblical. Like even what day was Jesus born? For some odd reason, it was ascribed that he was born on December 25th. But when you read the scripture, the scripture does not say. God does not say. And you would go, then why is it absent from scripture? And I I would say if it was relevant, God would have included it. But the fact is, we're supposed to worship the Lord every day in spirit and in truth, 365, 24-7, not knowing the exact day does not diminish or weaken whatsoever that Jesus, God in flesh, was born. We don't know the exact day of his crucifixion. We don't know the exact day of his resurrection, but we're to worship God every day in spirit and in truth, to worship him. The fact is, Jesus came. The fact is, Jesus lived. The fact is, Jesus was crucified, and he was raised on the third day. So when you start to look at a lot of what man has inserted, there's a lot of things that are not included in Scripture that we kind of run with, and we think, oh, that's the truth. I was just thinking through this week about how much worship is given to Jesus on December 25th in the world. Think about it. The majority of things that are done this week, that are done even next Sunday, it's not in worship to Christ. Turn on your Christian radio stations and listen to all the Christless Christmas songs that talk about mistletoe and talk about reindeer and talk about snowmen, they're called Christmas songs, but they're Christless Christmas songs. I I know some of your family traditions is uh, you're going to sit around and hang out as a family and watch a few Christmas movies like Christmas Vacation and you're going to laugh at Cousin Eddie, but it's a Christless movie. F is a Christless movie. And all these movies oftentimes that people are like so engaged with, 
Praise God for Charlie Brown, but they're just Christless. Last week, it was like, uh, hey, we're going to go to Monroe, and we're going to go to the Monroe Christmas Parade. And we're standing there on the streets watching this parade, and I looked at Dallas and Sandy and Barb, and I was like, this is a Christless Christmas Parade. I said, hey, hey, if we ever did a float, and Dallas was like, man, KOZ with our ministry, I would love to do one next year. I said, would you please title it The Reason and have a legit nativity there where people would say, oh, Christmas really is about Christ. But there's so many things that we do. And people's imaginations run wild when it comes to considering the Christmas narrative. People's minds run wild. Luke does not say that Jesus being placed in a manger was terrible. Luke does not present the innkeeper as being some cold, callous personality. But over the years, that's the way the guy is presented. I, I, I really love you guys, and I, I, I want to give you a, a quiz today. We're going to take a Christmas quiz as a church. I've got about five questions, and then I even got a bonus question to help you out because I want to see you pass. <laughs> We're going to do it together. But here would be question number one. What did the innkeeper tell Mary and Joseph when they arrived? Did he tell them, A, there's no, there's no room at the end? Did he tell them, B, hey, I have a stable you can use? Did he tell them, maybe C, both A and B, or did maybe he tell them D, none of the above? And the answer is D, he told them none of the above. But the way the narrative has been presented, we go hook, line, and sinker like he tells them there's no room. Scripture doesn't say that. When Mary and Joseph, question two, found out that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, what happened? Was it A, they got married? Was it B, that Joseph wanted to break the engagement? Was it C, Mary just skipped town for three months? Was it D, an angel told them to go to Bethlehem? Or maybe was it E, both B and C, or was it F, A and D? Well, the crazy thing is, the answer is E, that he wanted to break the engagement, but Mary skipped town for three months to go hang out with her cousin Elizabeth. Oh, I, I, I worded it that way because you're like, there's no way that would be the answer. <laughs> Sounds like something that would happen in noon in these days. But what animals does the Bible, the, Bi the Bible, imagine using the Bible as your final authority. What animals does the Bible say were there? Cow, sheep, donkey, or maybe it was bee, cow, sheep, and goat. Sheep and donkey only, a partridge in a pear tree. The Bible doesn't say. But imagine how we've inserted so much into that. How did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? I mean, you got A, donkey, B, camel, C, walked, or he walked and she rode a donkey. The Bible does not say. But it makes for a great movie, right? If he throws her on the donkey and he's laboring and trying to take care, that, that makes for a cute movie. When the wise men appeared, where did they find Jesus? Was he in a manger or 
a stable or a house or was he at the temple? Look at you, Hazel, the biblical scholar. You, you know what's crazy even about that question is Jesus was two years old when the wise men, magi, astrologers appear. And when they got there, he was two years old and they found him in the house. You know what's crazy? Pretty much every nativity that you see will present these three wise men there at the manger presenting these gifts. And it doesn't even say they were three. It's like they presented gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we've inserted that one like, oh, they were there. I, I remember when we were doing this Christmas quiz. I used to do it with our guys' Bible study uh, forever. And this one year I was having the guys like, uh, hey, you read this part and you read this part. And I'll never forget John Smoltz, the first year we did this, he started reading it. And he said, and Maggie appeared from the east bringing gifts. <laughs> and Jeff Foxworthy looked at him and he said, dude, when did Rod Stewart make the Christmas narrative? <laughs> and we started laughing. I was like, yeah, Maggie appeared. Wish I would have never seen your face. All right, guys, bonus question. want to help you out. How many angels spoke to the shepherds? And the, the answer is one, and I put S on there just to see if you would bite the bait. But an angel of the Lord appeared. Here's the point. There's so many things that we have been taught. So many things have been injected and inserted into the Christmas narrative that are not even a part of Scripture. But if we're not careful, we go hook, line, and sinker. It was funny, my one brother in the first service came up to me at the end, and he goes, hey, can you send me that quiz? I want to have some fun with our family. I said, sure. How'd you do on the quiz? <laughs> can you send me that quiz where I can have some fun with my family? <laughs> But I would tell you this, and I would encourage you, don't miss this. Luke's focus as he lays out the narrative of the birth of Christ is to focus on the humble beginnings of Jesus. That's what he's pointing to. Remember, Luke is presenting the gospel to a Greek audience, and he wants to show us all that Jesus came into the world in very humble conditions. He wants to show us that when Jesus arrives, he's unnoticed, he's unknown, and he's not given any special treatment. When you start to study the gospel narrative, no one in Bethlehem is paying attention. Everybody is busy and the town is hectic because everyone is coming there to register for the census, but then you would say, why would they be paying attention? And that's pretty much where we find our culture today. People are busy and people are hectic and no one's paying attention. And you've got to ask the question, why would God choose to enter the world that he created this way? I mean, God is the creator of all. The heavens and everything declare this beauty and 
greatness of God. In the beginning, God spoke. Why would he enter the world that he created in such a humble way? And when you study, you conclude that when God became one of us, man, he demanded none of the world's comfort. Jesus would even tell those that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus refused the comforts of the world. And God knew that discouraged, depressed, just knocked down people over the years would look up at the stars and go, Lord, you have no idea what I'm going through. And Jesus would say, I do. I know what it's like to be cold, and I know what it's like to be abandoned, and I know what it's like to feel lonely. I, I know. And he leveled the playing field. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, Though he, Jesus, was very rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. God became a man, God became a poor man to identify with the least of these, with the oppressed, with the down and out, with the outcast, with the poor, with the marginalized people of his day. He came to say, I'll identify with you. And even though he owns the cattle of a thousand hill and he has created the entire cosmos that we can even consider. Yet for your sake and my sake, he laid aside all these deitic privileges and took on the robe of flesh and became a mere man to identify with us. So you would say, why would you enter the world that you created in such a humble way? And then why would you announce yourself to shepherds? I mean, why didn't you go to the palace and why didn't you go to the kings and why didn't you go to royalty? But you came to shepherds and these shepherds are out in their field at night keeping watch over their sheep. And the scripture says, an angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord invades their space. Can you imagine the amazing light show that these shepherds witnessed that night? The glory of God invades their space. The glory of God, I'll break that down, is revealed to them. And then the angel of the Lord says, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Hey, I bring you good news of great joy. This is for all people. It's for you, and it's for me, and it's for kings, and it's for shepherds, and it's for outcasts, and it's for CEOs. The Savior's been born today, and scholars believe, don't miss this. Scholars believe that these shepherds were Levitical shepherds. They were not ordinary 
shepherds. They had been chosen, these shepherds had. They had been trained to oversee and care for the sheep that would be used as the sacrificial lambs at the temple. These were not just ordinary common shepherds. They were Levitical shepherds. And sacrificial lambs had to be spotless and without blemish. So keeping these lambs safe and sanctified was hard work. When you go back and study even what was happening in that day, Bethlehem was the area where these Levitical shepherds raised these lambs. Don't miss this. He comes to these shepherds. There's, there's a place just on the outskirts of Bethlehem, and the name of the town is called Megdal Eder. It was also known as the Tower of the Flock. I spent many hours studying this and pondering this and studying the Levitical shepherds. And there at Migdal Eder, the tower of the flock, there was an actual tower where these shepherds would go up in this tower. And it gave them visibility to look around. And it was a place of protection because they could keep their eyes on predators and wild beasts that would come try to attack their, their lambs. Because these lambs have been set apart, and these lambs are being groomed, and these lambs are going to be used by a family on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and they're going to take these lambs and offer these lambs, and these, these lambs are going to bring about atonement and allow these families to have peace with God. And they were sacrificial lambs, and they had to be taken care of. Even Micah that would prophesy that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Messiah. In Micah chapter 4, verse 8, it says this, as for you, tower of the flock, to you it will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, a ruler of Israel. Micah prophesied that it was going to be at the tower of the flock area where Messiah was going to be born. And many scholars believe that it was this exact place that Jesus would be born. You see, at the tower of the flock was also this cave, and this cave was a clean area. It was a sterile area, and it's where these people would bring their ewe lambs to allow these babies to be born, and it was clean, and it was sterile, and it was sanctified and set apart for the birthing of these unblemished lambs. It was right there in this cave at the tower of the flock, Migdal Eder, that most scholars believe that Jesus was born. And, 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 and when you get there, you're going to find this baby, this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he's going to be lying in a manger. These chosen lambs that were set apart, and these shepherds were totally familiar with it. These shepherds would take what was called swaddling cloths, and they would wrap these lambs in this swaddling cloth. Swaddling cloth, oh, this is so powerful. There was only one place, really, that kept swaddling cloth. Swaddling cloth 
was these strips of garment that were taken from the old priestly garments and were used. And these Levitical shepherds that were totally familiar with the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law, they knew the Mosaic law that you had to keep these sheep unblemished. And they would wrap them in a priestly way. You're going to find this baby there wrapped in these priestly garments. They knew where to go. They knew the significance of swaddling cloth. This cloth is going to wrap them and it's going to bring comfort for these lambs. And it's going to bring protection and and, and it's going to keep them warm. And we got to do everything we can to, to not let this little lamb become blemished. Because if that lamb were to get a scrape or a scar or a blemish, that lamb could not be used as a sacrificial offering before the Lord. As the Jews would celebrate Passover, they knew where to go. Listen, listen, please listen. We've read Luke chapter 2 for years. Maybe even as a family, maybe even as a little devotional. You would sit there with your kids and we just read through it. But there's so much meat and weightiness and heaviness in the scripture that we would read swaddling cloth and just keep going like, Oh, it must have been like a cool blanket that came maybe from Nordstrom and not Walmart. I mean, I don't know. But if you dive into it, you go, oh. And these shepherds are being introduced to the ultimate perfect lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world that would become the ultimate atoning sacrifice once and for all. Hey, guys. Tonight, in the city of David, there in Bethlehem, the, the Savior, the Lord, the Messiah, Steve, has been born. And you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloth. Verses 13 and 14 says, after the glory of the Lord surrounds them, we get it. If anybody understands the tower of the flock in swaddling cloth, Joel, we, 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 we got it. We know where to go and we know what we're going to find. We, we get it. After the glory of the Lord surrounds them, suddenly the angel with a multitude of the heavenly host start praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Glory, glory, glory. And peace on earth among those with whom he is well pleased. If I'm taking notes and if I'm studying and if I'm pondering, please write this down. If there were two words that would describe the mission of this baby, it is glory and peace. Glory and peace. The word glory is the sum of all of God's magnificent attributes. When you read the word glory, glory implies the greatness of God, 
the perfection of God, the beauty of God, the extravagance of God, they're singing at the top and shouting at the top and praising at the top of their lungs, glory, greatness, perfection, beauty, complete, all to the glory of God. Oh, praise God. This is not just some random announcement. When you start to contemplate and consider the glory of God, it's beyond human description. It's beyond words. When you think of every attribute of God, every action of God, all you can say is glory. The character of God, the hands of his work, glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmaments show with his handiwork. That's what the psalmist said. God's glory His greatness, his beauty, his perfection. That's what they're saying. Praise God. All your glory. And then it says peace. Peace means calmness and tranquility and contentment and rest. We read in the Old Testament the peace of God, the shalom of God, the contentment, the rest of God. Peace means that things are in their proper order, working just how God designed them to work. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. My peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives do I give. These two words... Glory, peace, glory, peace. And these two words also define our deepest need. These two words define our deepest need. When you start to consider that we're all born into the world, we're looking for and we're longing for greatness and we're longing for beauty and we're longing to be noticed and we're longing to be somebody and we're longing for rest and we're longing for calmness and care and tranquility. We're all born into the world looking for glory and peace. But the problem is we look in the wrong places and we become so glory obsessed with the wrong places things and everything we end up doing in life and the things we say and the choices we make and even some of the relationships that we form, we're doing it because we're looking for glory and peace and we're looking in people and we're looking in places and we're looking in things and we're looking in stuff and we're looking at all these places for glory and peace. We're looking for true greatness and true beauty true rest. We were created to praise God. We were created to worship God. We were created to please God. But our focus got misaligned. And we started focusing on the horizontal and not the vertical. And when you look at all of creation, 
Why do we have what we have around us? Because all creation was designed by God for the glory of God to point us to the person of God, the character of God, the holiness of God. Everything that we see should point us to God. You're the center of it all. You're the creator of it all. You deserve our worship. Paul David Tripp, one of my favorite writers, makes this observation. But in a moment of disobedience and rebellion, Adam and Eve chose to live for the glory of the creation rather than for the glory of God. They wanted something in the created more than they wanted the creator. And ever since that moment, I love what Tripp says, there has been confusion and a glory war. Other glories now compete in our heart for the glory of God. We ignore the glory of God. We reject the glory of God. And if we're not careful, we start to live for the created. We start to live for what we can get here. And if you look at the root of every sin, it is an exchange of God's glory for something created. Every sin at the root of it, we're exchanging the glory of God for some glory in creation, a fallen glory, a corrupt glory. Even when you start to look at lust, lust will exchange the glory of God for momentary sexual pleasure. We're exchanging the goodness of God for this feel-good moment. Materialism ends up replacing the glory of God with things and stuff and stuff that will rust and stuff that will break. Pride ends up exchanging the glory of God for self-glory and to be noticed and to be applauded and, man, you've got to like me. And Tripp goes on to say that we're born into the world glory thieves. We're born into the world glory thieves. And things and stuff ends up becoming our affection and gets most of our attention. And that's where we spend our time and our money. And it's in the, we end up treasuring this stuff. And we convince ourselves, and the lies of the evil one will say, you've got to have this. You can't live without it. And our life becomes more dictated by the created than the creator. And we don't worship the creator. We, we end up settling and we end up satisfying ourselves with things that lead to more emptiness because we're in this glory war and the enemy knows that this is a glory war and he knows that he is the ultimate thief. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. And because of the sin nature that we're born with, we often gravitate toward just being thieves, glory thieves, searching for greatness, Meaning, purpose, beauty, rest, contentment. That's what we're searching for. That's what you're searching for. When I met my buddy Foxworthy for the first time, and we're standing there talking about 30 minutes into the conversation, and I said, you've had your own TV shows, you've done all this kind of stuff with your comedy. You moved from L.A. back to Atlanta. I'll never forget, I asked Jeff, I said, so what are you looking for? That's what I asked him. 
He goes, hell, I'm looking for what everybody else is looking for. Oh, really? What is that? He goes, I'm looking for peace. This was a man that had filmed a show between Roseanne and Seinfeld who had national notoriety. And in his heart, what are you looking for? Peace. Every person born into this world is longing for peace. We're longing for peace. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We... And the truest thing about Tim Cash today is he is loved by God. Truest thing about you, Norm, Tara, Spencer, the truest thing about you, Kim, you're loved by God. And only that God who made you in his image, who has redeemed you with his blood, who has sent forth his Holy Spirit to occupy your life can give you peace. Glory! You want to be great? No God. You want to walk in perfection? No God. You want to be able to lay your head on the pillow at night and do not fear the knowing that the Lord is with you and experience the shalom of God? You've got to know Christ. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So all men are without excuse. And if you read a bit longer there in Romans, it says, and they exchanged they exchanged the glory of God and worshiped idols. Can I tell you, trading the glory of God for idols never leads to peace. When we worship the created more than the creator, and the created becomes our personal Messiah, it will always lead to chaos. Whether it's money, whether it's materialism, whether you're using a relationship on the horizontal, when the horizontal created stuff becomes your personal Messiah to bring you joy and hope and meaning and purpose and significance, it will always lead to chaos. Always. Time to land the plane. Once this amazing light show is over, I couldn't imagine what those Levitical shepherds who understood sacrificial lambs and swaddling and all this stuff that they knew. I, I can't ima imagine even how amazed they were. When it's all over and the angels, this angelic host departs, 
the shepherds look at one another and go, we have got to go to Bethlehem to check this out. So the shepherds go, they find Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, and the shepherds who know sheep, who know pure sheep, who know perfect sheep, who know what it looks like, the scripture says, after they're there, they leave glorifying and praising God. The rightful response for any person who has ever encountered the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the rightful response for any of us after we encounter the risen Christ, that God would save a pagan like me, a wretch like me, that God would come and rescue me from darkness and transfer me into the kingdom of light, that he would take me out of miry clay and set my feet on the rock. The only rightful response for the redeemed of the Lord is glorifying and praising God. You can't boast about what you've done. Your sin is not so sloppy that he can't save you. And your accomplishments are like filthy rags. Don't try to bring them to merit even deeper favor. They love praising God and glorifying God. Any person who has ever stood and been in the presence of Almighty God the response is, glory to God. Lord, the fact that you would create me and I rebelled against you so greatly, but you pursued me and you've saved me. Praise the Lord. Humility is the posture of heart. So the question we, 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 we wrestle with is have I truly encountered the Lamb of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord? Have I embraced him? Have I surrendered to him? Have I received this perfect gift from God? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for being in the rescuing business and the saving business. Jesus entered humanity with humble beginnings. And he came to identify with all of us, the hurting, the lost, the sick, the discouraged, those who are experiencing despised circumstances. I've come to identify with you. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through. God is sovereign. He's omnipotent present and omniscient and omnipotent. God, God knows where I'm at today and he knows where you're at today and he knows what your deepest need is today. He knows what your deepest pain is today. He came to identify with us and he wants you to identify with him. And Christ alone is where my identity and my worth and my value is found Jesus, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you really care? I really care. So when you're tempted to throw that prayer of desperation up into the heavens and go, you don't understand what I'm going through. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrew says. We've got one who was tempted in every way, just like us. 
without blemish or sin. I know what you're going through. And if you'll seek the glory of God and the peace of God and allow the peace of God to take over your life, I promise you, you'll start to live. You'll start to live. You'll start to forgive. You'll start to release goodness. You'll start to love your neighbor. You'll start to love those that persecute you. You'll start to bless those that dog you. Come to me, all of you who are tired and all of you who are weary. Let me give you rest, shalom, peace.